Since this radio program airs on Monday nights, I had big plans for a special episode that would air the Monday evening before Election Day. This special episode was going to be so special, I thought it just might change the course of the election itself. I've been working on this episode for months now, and there have been trips across the globe, secret recordings. Trust me, it was going to be epic. I was going to call it October Surprise. But then, well, hurricane or superstorm or Frankenstorm or whatever the it was, Sandy hit and everything got messed up. My show is in tatters. Sandy, it turns out, is the real October Surprise. So I decided to call up a few folks I know and talk to them about the upcoming election and Sandy. Cartoonist Adrian Tomina lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn. He did the cover for this week's New Yorker. It references both Sandy and the election. So, Adrian, tell me about your Sandy experience. Well, I think, um, you know, the, the, the strangest aspect of it all to me was just how different of an experience you could have had last week depending on, like, a quarter of a mile, you know? Uh-huh. Um, like, uh, you know, we're not that far from Dumbo and, and Red Hook, um, and so to just to compare the experience of, of someone there versus someone uh, in our neighborhood is, is pretty pretty incredible. And, um, you know, I was just sitting in front of my computer all night watching stuff on the Internet and looking at people's Twitter feeds and things like that. And, yeah, I, I was doing that, too, until the power went out. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that was the expectation. I was like, at any minute, everything's just going to go dark, and then then it'll sort of, you know, change the uh, change the perspective even more dramatically all of a sudden. But, yeah. um, but you know, it, it was it was just odd that in, in our neighborhood, which is uh, obviously at a higher elevation, um, it, it didn't actually even feel like that dramatic of a storm like it wasn't raining very much where we were uh there were a few gusts of wind um but nothing that uh, if if i hadn't uh been uh connected to the world through technology i would have just thought oh, it's just kind of a stormy yeah. night outside so once it did go out so i remember i think it was around six o'clock so the problem was i got the flu that morning i knew i was getting sick so i crawled into bed and you know, I had I had a couple bottles of orange juice and stuff near near the bed, and I I was you know taking a bunch of uh, uh, medicines. But then I you know I had the iPhone, and I was just right. scrolling through Twitter, looking at stuff. And then I wrote to someone who said, "How's it going in the East Village?" And I wrote, "Oh, it's fine. We still have power." And then like five minutes later, the power went out. Yeah, which yeah, which, it's amazing. Which was fun. so. I'm curious for when you knew that the power was out for so much of the city. Like, what was going on on Twitter? Like, what were you looking at? Were you looking at pictures of stuff? Like, were you? Just- yeah, I was. I was. Um, uh, the the just the anyone who could put a little photo up or a little video. It was. It was that was interesting to me. I mean, um, and just to see it kind of unfold in in real time or just you know with a slight delay. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. I was. I was looking. Uh, uh, you know, you're, you're you're somewhat guided by things that you have more of a personal connection to. So I was, um, 
especially shocked to watch uh, the, the the waters roll in in, in Red Hook and, and Dumbo. I was, you know, like looking at the Twitter feeds of certain stores or restaurants or whatever that I was familiar with, and, and basically realizing that that they they were going to get hit pretty hard. Um, you know, my my daughter loves that uh, kind of antique carousel down by the by the bridge. Uh-huh. And so some, someone posted this amazing photo of it, just like the lights were still on in it, but the water was almost like all the way <laughs> half, like halfway up the height of the entire carousel. And it was just like glowing in this, in this, uh, this ocean. Was, did you, did was, you show her this picture? No, 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 because, because the next morning or, or, or two days later, the owner came, came online and said that, uh, it's going to be okay, that there was some damage, but it's going to be up and running again. So. so you didn't like want to scare her with that? No, no. She, I mean, she, she didn't even know. I mean, uh, the, the thing that I thought was, um, just in this neighborhood that was most troubling was to see like the anticipatory panic and, and fear that sort of spread through everyone and to see, um, you know, I mean, like right now, there's like this kind of tremendous feeling of of community and goodwill that's going through through New York, and people are helping each other out, and we're all kind of patting each other on on the back a little bit. But I got to say that I got this little glimmer of of the opposite of that in the days leading up to the storm, where people were hoarding groceries and would snatch the last bottle of water out from someone uh, at the grocery store. Well, I saw it, like, you know, as it was happening, I finally dragged myself out of bed on uh, Tuesday, and, you know, so the power is still out, and, you know, the images I saw really stuck with me. There was a pizza place at, like, First and St. Mark's, and it was, mm-hmm. it's full of kids, like, gnawing on cold pizza. They, they, they were selling cold pizza, and... Uh, and it, it's just like they were rats. And then up by NYU, which had generators, yeah. so they had power, there was just like all kind of people hoarding around the entrances because they have actually outlets in the walls. So they're trying to plug in their phones? No, no. There was a giant fat guy with like charging his two iPads, like sort of like doing body interference on like all these young girls who like just wanted to like charge their phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's amazing how, how uh, what a slippery slope it is into like uh uh you know i mean i was at, i was having brunch with some people yesterday and they're talking about how they're even still trying to ration out the gas that they have remaining in the tanks of their cars because they have to they work upstate or you know all this stuff that they have to calculate out and i was just thinking like if this isn't it's not gonna if this, if this goes on a little bit longer we're gonna start fighting in in thunderdome you know it's like uh <laughs> People will kill you so that they can charge up their iPad. Or yeah, yeah. This is this is why I stayed inside. There was one thought I had though I, at night. I really wished I had the strength to get out of bed and go to the bridge and look at the city like half yeah. in the dark. I, I really and I still haven't had the time to go online and and and. Look. Yeah, the photos are amazing. Like to see like the bridge illuminated exactly halfway across and. Um, and just uh, uh, the cover of, of New York magazine this week has a great photo, kind of an aerial photo of, of Manhattan and the lower half completely. Oh, yeah. Out. No, that's the, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I haven't bothered to go online to look for more, because that one kind of sums it up. It's yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 I, but, Adrian, I want to talk to you about the other, another great cover <laughs> that's on the newsstands this week, which is the one you did for uh, the New Yorker magazine, right. which is also Sandy-related. And it's already gone viral. I've seen it posted all over on the Internet. But mm-hmm. can you describe it for us here? Uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a mostly black cover, and um, it's uh, got a very small image of a, 
of a guy kind of um, crawling through uh, some some floodwaters with a flashlight, uh, uh, basically searching for his his polling place. <laughs> Yeah, but there's like you can't really see. So there's it's very very dark, and you've got like a submerged taxi cab in the distance. So that's how you can kind of s- tell like how deep the waters yeah, are. Yeah, there's a there's a submerged uh, cab, and also if you look, uh, it, this is one of those things that gets kind of lost in the the digital version of it. But I think if when the print version comes out, uh, also floating on top of the water is, is a little metro card too. Oh, um, and. Uh, yeah, and then the guy's kind of up to his uh, up to his uh, armpits in in dark water. And he's got and he's got a flashlight, and he's he's the light is shining on a wall. And and just tell us what's on the wall. Yeah, it's it's the um, the standard uh, multilingual polling place sign that we see all around the city with the black arrow in the middle, and then um, uh, three or four different languages uh, saying vote vote here. Yeah. So it combines Sandy and the election. And, and was this something, you know, when you were online looking at, you know, all the stuff that was going on, as you just described, were you thinking about Sandy plus the election from the beginning? Yeah, I, I was, but not in terms of, um, I, I'm not enough of a of a pro, right? I instantly look at any kind of news item and try and translate it in my mind into a, into a New Yorker cover. Uh, th- those two things were already combining in my mind, but more just in terms of a on a like a human level in terms of how is this going to affect the election and then um starting to think about how uh i'm uh, I, if i had any glimmer of hope at that moment it was that maybe that this uh storm would sort of point people in in a certain direction in terms of the election too in terms yeah. of who, who's going to acknowledge uh climate change and 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 uh, things like that and, and there was also a lot of kind of I felt like during the the run up to this election, there was a lot of hypothetical kind of debates thrown around about is is Obama uh, an effective enough leader, and what if there was a natural disaster, would he be able to handle it well, and do we need to to spend money on FEMA anymore, and and, and things like that. And so so as this was all unfolding, I was sort of thinking, you know, this is, I mean, obviously everyone's immediate concern should be sur- survival and taking care of each other and everything, but uh, this also seems like it's gonna I'm hoping it will have some repercussions in, in, in terms of the election as well. Yeah, but it's it's kind of like the greatest October surprise in the history of <laughs> October surprises, though. Really? Yeah. And, yeah. No, I mean when you have uh, when people are looking at images of uh, uh, Chris Christie uh, shaking hands with Obama, and <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's kind of stuff that that people never could have predicted even two weeks ago. Yeah, but with your cover, I mean, I felt like even when I was in the dark. Uh, during this this week, writhing in pain and hallucinating, you know, grim thoughts because of the flu. I think that I was worried that perhaps that the East Coast being whacked from Sandy, it would affect the voting in the sense that you know these traditional sort of locked in blue states would lose a lot of votes because as the guy on the on the cover that you drew, he can't maybe find where to vote yeah i mean i it's i i think it's still uh, as much of a, a risk as it is um as, a, as it is a boost because i mean i know many many polling places in 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 new york are getting switched at the last minute and so 
Um, tense. I hear we're going to be voting in tense. Yeah. You know, for someone like me who works from home, if I get to my normal polling place and I say, oh, no, you're actually at some place in another neighborhood, you know, I can start walking and I'll go take care of it. But there are some people who can take off an hour from their job, especially now if, they've, if they're, you know, a waiter and they've lost all of their tips from last week. That's not money that you recoup. It's just gone, you know. Yeah. So maybe they, they have their lunch break and they get to their polling place and it's been moved. You know, it's, it's not... Um, it's not perfect, that's for sure. No, no. Now, we've actually had Francoise Moulet, the uh, cover art editor for The New Yorker, on the program before, and she's talked about her process and how she works with artists for mm. the covers. But I'd love to take this opportunity to hear your version of how this works as, as an artist. Uh, well, um, it, it sort of depends on, on which, which cover we're talking about. but um, Like this new know, one. I mean, it, I would imagine it would have been... It must have been insanely competitive. I mean, in the context of Sandy, where you know you have a New York event that's national headline news. I mean, you can't be the only artist who said, "Wow, I've got a great idea for this." Yeah, week. I don't know. I you know I, I think I think one of Francoise's many gifts is she sort of shields us all from that kind of knowledge. Like I don't I don't if I if my cover doesn't get picked, I don't know the the, the machinations behind the scenes mm. that led to my not getting picked. Um, but um, I mean, I guess is it as simple as you were there first? You like just showed up? You know, you had power. You were. Yeah, able I don't to... know. You know, this, this, the funny thing is, I actually have had a different cover for the New Yorker that's been in their hands for a long time now, and it's been repeatedly bumped, um, uh, usually by some combination of Mitt Romney and Barry Blitt, uh, the the, yeah. <laughs> the cover artist who's been doing so many uh, election-related covers. Um, because it's sort of like they were going to plan, they were planning on running mine, and then Mitt Romney's 47% video leaked, and then so suddenly yeah. Barry Blitt was able to churn out something related to that. And um, so you bumped someone, so you can feel good that you probably bumped somebody this week. Well, I, I, I bumped myself. That's the funny thing. Is so finally this uh, this week my my much delayed uh, cover, which is related to the uh, the Barclays Arena here in, in Brooklyn uh, and the and the Nets. Um, uh, anyway, it was supposed to finally run this week, and uh, and Francoise actually called me from Paris. She was actually in in Paris, and said, "Well, it looks like uh, because of this storm, your cover is going to get bumped once again." It, but um, we don't have anything yet either. So if you want to try and bump yourself, uh, you have basically today to submit some ideas. Wow. And, uh, wow. So she gave you the opportunity to kill yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Which, which is, which is fine. I'm, I mean, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's more palatable when it's, uh, when it's yeah. my own fault. <laughs> and so did this help sort of having a deadline? Like you knew like this was break it or make it or break it. You know, you had a day to do this. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I think that most of my New Yorker covers, well, all of them, except for this one, have not been timely in any way. Yeah. Or political. So, or, yeah, or, or having, political yeah. or anything. And so it just it was sort of like I had all the time in the world to waste on them. I would fret over every little detail, and I'd make them very complicated in terms of all the background details and try and fill it with, with detail and, and things like that. And, um, you know, sometimes I'd sit there looking at the colors on the computer screen for days, making tiny, <laughs> little, tiny little adjustments. <laughs> and with this one, I had an hour to sketch out the idea and get it sent in to her. Um, and then I had a day to, to draw and, and color the whole thing. And, um, and I think in some ways that helped me. It's, it's, it's my, yeah. my least uh, overworked and least overthought 
cover for sure. This is why it's all dark too. Oh yeah, that was very strategic. It was sort of, uh, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to draw um, a whole scene of of New York architecture in in three point perspective and, and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. So, so there was some some advanced planning too. Yeah, but come on, if you didn't have this great idea, it wouldn't have happened. So was this the first one that you came up with? It was the only one. Yeah, I, I said um, I had I have basically enough time to like even physically draw one one sketch so i did that and uh sent that in and oh that's I just, great yeah i mean i thought this is this is what's coming to mind right now and uh if if someone comes up with something better than then i i understand but um i'm mm. not gonna I, i'm not gonna be able to improve upon this in the next <laughs> few minutes you know it's it's, it's interesting because your version of the process kind of does match the one that she has she really is a genius at sort mm. of pairing up you know, ideas and artists and cartoonists. I mean, obviously, with her background, I mean, she yeah. she knows this stuff so well. But uh, yeah, well, you know, she's always. Um, I feel like she's always been a good gauge of. Well, she's been very generous, but also um, kind of intuitive in terms of gauging my abilities. I mean, um, you know, she uh, was the. You know, she she kind of uh, pushed me towards doing my first cover for the New Yorker back in 2004, and it was it seemed like she had sort of waited a few years uh, to watch me do stuff inside the magazine um, before inviting me to submit work for the cover, and um, you know, and she's so far selected me for um, covers with with themes that that matched well with my my style, and yeah. and I I think in this time in this case she's sort of took a little bit of a risk, but, um, you know, it wasn't like she wasn't asking me to do something that was going to be, uh, impossible. It was just something new and uh, a new challenge. And she, uh, she had faith in me. So that was, that was incredible. So, so Adrian, you have a new book out from your publisher, Drawn and Quarterly. It's called New York Drawings. And right. it's got uh, probably your most iconic cover, which I think is the first, the one you were just talking about, right. on the, the, the cover of the book, which is another, an amazing iconic image hanging on on the walls of apartments from Williamsburg to Tacoma but i'm sure it's probably even tattooed uh, uh some on someone out there but it, you... it actually is i've 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 seen seen the picture of it oh god oh god <laughs> can you talk about this one describe it for us and and i'd love to hear you know quickly why you think this one you know became so iconic so quickly uh yeah it's it's at this point it's probably the the image of mine that's been seen seen the most by the widest range of people, and it's uh, it's just a scene uh, inside a, a New York subway, and there's a, a woman reading a book, and she's looking out into the darkness of the, the subway tunnel, and there's a, a, a train, a, another train uh, adjacent adjacent to hers, and through that window you see a, a guy, and they're reading the similar book, and they're sort of locking eyes for a split second, um, yeah. and and that's uh, one of those things that. Um, I, I think would it be more likely to occur to someone who had just moved to New York. That was that was one of the first assignments I did after moving to New York from California, and um, you know I think after you've lived here for a little while, you think of the subway ride as a time to get caught up on some reading or sleep or listen to your music or whatever. Uh, but for me, I was still you know uh, looking out the window all the time and sort of uh, uh, noticing that. Every once in a while, two trains will sort of synchronize and, and move at the same speed for a few seconds, and you'll have this very clear line of view into the uh, next train over. And um, uh, 
that was the, the, the start of that idea, and I, I um, have to give Francois credit for what ended up being kind of like the most memorable little detail of that, which is uh, I, I had drawn it with just the emphasis on the two people kind of locking eyes, looking up from their books, and she suggested that I put in a little bit of uh, detail in the drawing to show that they were actually holding the same book. Um, and uh, that's been one of the things that people yeah, rem- that, remember about that. They're, they're identifying, you know, that their shared interest by their, their, their same per- consumer purchases. <laughs> yeah, well, that's important to young people. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right, obviously there's something about this image. Someone has this tattooed on their body. What, what do you think it is? Uh, I guess um, it might be... You know, I th- I think a lot of my my work in general, and and especially my New Yorker covers, there's always a little bit of a implication of sarcasm or 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 cynicism or or something. I mean, there's one that shows like the life cycle of a book from from a woman writing it to it being published and printed and sold in stores, and a guy reading it, and eventually he puts it out on a stoop, and some homeless guys use it to to light on fire and warm their hands over. Um, you know, so things like that that have sort of a, a slightly darker undertone or something. And I think this one was an, uh, an anomaly in that it's it's basically very sweet and kind of uh, romantic in a way. Um, and I think, uh, you know, people yeah. like people like sweet and romantic. Yeah, yeah it's important to the kids. I, I, yes. <laughs> I get that. Now, one of the things you talk about in your book is that, you know, you're actually quite proud of the commercial work that you've done and that you do. But it seems rare. I've met a well, lot of cartoonists. On which commercial work we're talking about. I know, but, not... but hold on. We know a lot of cartoonists who seem to really hate working for the man and, oh, yeah. and drawing anything other than their own comics. Yeah. Is it, is it just because it's the New Yorker, or have you always loved doing commercial work? No, no, I've, I haven't always loved it, and there's still a lot of uh, jobs that I've taken on that have been pretty mercenary, you know, just... Uh, but not not the cover for the Yola Tango CD, <laughs> right? That's also in the book, because, you <laughs> right, know, right. which, which uh, takes place in the WFMU studios. That You, you, you love doing that one. They actually, there's actually a second volume that they have. They, I've already done the artwork for the second CD of, of their uh, fundraiser. Okay, they, good. They just haven't put it out yet. Um, which you, you like doing that one. I do. It continues that story, actually, from, from the cover of the first album. Oh, good. Uh, but, you know, I think there, there's the fact that you know I, I'm I'm a fan of the New Yorker as as a reader and that uh, I have a really um, pleasant and and friendly working relationship with with a, a handful of people there that we've sort of developed over the years. Uh, so a lot of the the, the frustrations of, of of that relationship between illustrator and art director and editor are, are eradicated because we kind of know what to expect from each other, but. Um, you know, I, I've I've totally been on that same page, uh, like you described, of, of being the the independent artist who who feels that everything else is a is a distraction from his real work and and all that. But um, you know, that changed for me quite a bit when I uh, when I became a parent a few years ago, and um, a lot of our friends started having kids, and I started to see some of these pretty um, dramatic choices that people were making in order to to have enough money to, to, to be a family in New York, you know, moving to, to places that they wouldn't necessarily want to live and uh, making a lot of personal sacrifices and, and things like that. And so 
suddenly I viewed every New Yorker assignment as just a really luxurious way to make some money um, and to be a part of a magazine that I'm 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 a fan of, you know. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's that's and and I think that's uh, made me more um, <laughs> appealing as an artist uh, mm-hmm. to work with too, from 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 uh, the, the employer's point of view. You know, I think I used to have sort of a chip on my shoulder where I'd be almost annoyed that they were asking me to do. Uh, <laughs> how no, dare you? Yeah, <laughs> how dare you intrude on on the great artist's personal work? <laughs> well, it's a great book, and there really are a lot of great images uh, in it. And thank you. Um, this coming weekend uh, is the Brooklyn Comics Festival, which takes place in uh, Williamsburg this weekend. A lot of great artists will be in town for this. Chris Ware. Uh, Charles Burns, and are are you going to be uh, at the fair as well? I'm going to be there, yeah. I'll be there um, basically just hanging out uh, in the afternoon at Drawn and Quarterly's booth, uh, signing books. And uh... This is the third year now, and it's, it's just, it's getting better every year. But I also think because of Sandy and because of what just, you know, the city's been through this week, I mean, they, they canceled the marathon, but they yeah. can't cancel the Brooklyn Comics Festival. That's so, the city with the right priority. <laughs> so I think that this weekend it should be, I think it should be a really kind of an amazing uh, way for, for people to, to uh, you know, to come together. It's an important event. Yeah, there'll be a lot of um, non-comics talk for a change. I think everybody kind of wants to, to hear from each other how, how, how things went and how yeah. they're doing. And, and um, so I think that'll be a difference. Yeah this year but yeah it's it's i think at this point it's probably my favorite uh american comics uh convention yeah i would have to i'd have to agree with you on that one you know wfmu had to cancel its record fair we do an annual record fair and that was going to be this week oh yeah it's terrible which means the station took a a very large hit we were doing a silent fundraiser online for the month of october and we've had to uh, uh continue this um we're going into disaster marathon mode, and if you go to the WFMU playlist page, our, our audience can can figure out ways in which they can help support the station and get us through this trying time. But all of our staffers are safe. Everyone made it through, and um, there's a lot of people in need uh, all across the region, um, but WFMU certainly uh, will need some support to get through this as well. But Adrian, uh, Tamina, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'll probably see you this weekend, I hope. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Adrian. All right. Take care. Bye, Benjamin. Mitt Romney's Mormon faith was hardly a factor in the 2012 presidential campaign. The candidate spent more time talking about his tax returns than his religion. Perhaps he was wary of scaring the evangelical base of the Republican Party with the wild prophecies of Joseph Smith or fantastic tales about the Mormon planet of Kaloub. Or perhaps there was something else. All young Mormon men are required to go on an overseas mission when they turn 18. And Mitt Romney was no exception. And in 1968, he went to France. 
What happened was is that Mitromne, as uh, it's now well documented, was rejected. He would uh, go door to door as Mormon missionaries are supposed to do. People would slam the door to his face. That's Sylvain Gir, a French radio producer I met in Paris when I went to investigate Romney's French past. Sylvain Gir's mother, Madeleine, encountered Romney on the streets of Paris. And this encounter, Gir told me, brought Mitt Romney face to face with one of the leading revolutionaries of the 20th century, Guy Debord. This is the story that should have been the October surprise of October surprises. Mitromne first was in Le Havre, in the coast, the northern coast uh, of France, in Normandy, and then he was in Bordeaux. But in May 68, he was in Bordeaux, and he had to do, he had to accomplish a mission in Paris. But because of the general strike, he was unable to go back to Bordeaux. There was no gas in gas stations. The trains were not working. There was a general strike. It is actually the biggest general strike in France modern history. I think the number of, of people on strike is estimated between five to six millions. You know, that about half of the working forces. But all France was on strike. It was not only a student's riots, as it is pictured now. It was a general worker strikes, together with students rioting and fighting with the police every night in the streets of Paris, where the universities were. My mother was also forced to stay in Paris, but that was okay with her. And she met this young American kid. He was crying, he was afraid, he was far from home. You know, he was alone, he was frightened. But then my mother, because of her pro-American feelings, you know, though she was more liberal, but she had these strong American feelings, my mother would open the door to Americans and feed them. So hold on a second, did he, did he knock on the door, like telling her about the Mormon religion and then start crying? I mean, what, what happened? I don't know. Maybe he was crying because of the tear gas. Maybe he was crying because he was far away from home, you know, kind of E.T. situation. I don't remember exactly the circumstances. Now, for what has happened between them, because obviously this is what you want to know, um, my mother would be uh, very quiet and shy about that. What I can tell you is that at this time, she had a close relationship, as one would say, with the famous uh, radical thinker Guy Debord, the man who is now uh, considered as the, um, the, the man who started May 68, who started the revolt. Now, Guy Debord, uh, to put it briefly, is a radical thinker and avant-garde artist. He's a founder of the famous uh, movement International Situationist, Situationist International, that then had branches in the US and everywhere in Europe. Now, he was obviously fighting the police every night with his friends. But he was also, as it's been later known by his famous autobiography called Panégyrique in French, he was a drunk, okay? He was a heavy, heavy drinker. He would drink most of the time. So, one night, Guy Debord is hiding from the police, He's been fighting them, he's run, you know, he's chased by the police in the streets of Paris. He ends up in my mother, Madeleine's apartment. And this is where history collides in a most uh, incredible way. Imagine that, you have this woman, Madeleine, gorgeous woman, 30 years old, beautiful, 
good cook, nice, big heart. And then you have, on the left, this Guidobor radical thinker, you know, many women at his feet, like the top of his generation. Brilliant guy. And you have this young kid, 19, 20 year old, this young American kid, Mitch Romney, a Mormon missionary. Can you imagine that? As the family story goes, my mother cooked for them. This is what you do in France anyway. You have people over, you cook. She would start with a salad, then a vegetable soup, then probably a good piece of meat. But because of the strikes, there might be restrictions. But you have this thing in Lyon that you can do very good meal with a, a few things from scratch, you know, almost what's left over in the fridge. So she would cook for air. I mean, I think lover, Guy Debord, and this young man, Mitch Romney. Now, after dinner, I think they would have argued about the war in Vietnam and many things. And as the story goes, Guy triggered Mitch in this kind of uh, drinking contest. Starting with wine, I think there were a few bottles of wine, you know, red wine from Burgundy, which has always been his favorite. Then moving along, you know, with pastis, this terrible drink from Marseille that can drive people crazy, you know. It's the, think of pastis as the illegit illegitimate uh, hair of absinthe, you know. And then through, like, country own preparation, you know, eau de vie, gnole, that would be per uh, spirit, you know, things like that, distilled alcohol, maybe whiskey, maybe vodka at the point. It's difficult to make out. So why would Mitt Romney participate in this contest since, you know, he's a Mormon, a uh, young man who's never had a drop of alcohol in his life? Pour les beaux yeux de Madeleine, for the sweet eyes of my mother. Madeleine, I can't see any reasonable explanation other than this one, you know. Is this man, is young, is, you know, Guy looks like, I mean, really, he's been drinking for months now, he started a revolution, he's really arrogant, as he always was. I mean, meat, in all his innocence, you know, of a 20-year-old, thinks, I'm a, I don't know, he would probably kind of what you guys call a jock at this point. He would say, I'm going to, to win this thing. So he entered the drinking contest. Guidobor, as you can read in, in Panégyrique, there is a beautiful chapter. Everyone should read that because it's the most beautiful French language. I guess the English uh, translation is beautiful too. Guidobor can drink for months entirely in a row. So, I mean, at this point, he would outdrink anybody, especially a 20-year-old Mormon who never drank a single drop of alcohol in his life. But there is another contest that took place, which is even more interesting, a competition between those two men about slogans. You remember that Guidobor and the Situationists in, in general were famous for their slogans. Guidobor would come up with uh, Sous les pavés la plage, under the stones, the sand, the sand is under the stones. Now, Guidobor was always bragging about that because in the 50s, he already came up with the famous slogan, never work. So during the course of the evening, Mitromne was kind of fed up with Guy going on and on about his slogans. 
I guess at this point, Mitchell is really drunk. So he goes in the street of Paris. He's drunk. He's angry. He's jealous. He wants to make a point. So he will fight the bar slogan for slogan. And my mother can still remember some of the most beautiful slogans that Mitchell came up with on this night. There's get rich. There's conform, conform, conform. And I think, and also as he was, you know, in this bath of French culture and poetry and alliteration, he would come up with beautiful things such as prophet, profit, you know, prophet and profits. That my mother doesn't remember exactly the saying, but that goes like that, you know, prophet and profits. Very good one. So, obviously, what should happen, happen, is that Mitromne lost this competition. You know, he's absolutely too drunk. He can't make it. He can't stand it. I think he pukes all over the place. It's a terrible mess. He ends up sleeping on a couch and my mother with Guidobor. The following day, guilt kicks in, obviously. Guild kicks in, he's in a bad state, he doesn't want to look anybody in the eyes, he just gets up, gets dressed and leaves. And there, in the street of Paris, are his slogans. Imagine that, it's Paris, May 68, the early hours, the smell of tear gas lingering in the streets, barricades everywhere, the streets are empty and deserted, and this young man, you know, is stumbling through the street, but at the same time, everywhere he looks in the neighborhood, in like four or five streets around my mother's place, he can see his slogans, he can see his writings on the wall, get rich, conform, profits, profit. I mean, that must have been such an uh, encouragement for him, you know. That must have been terribly uplifting for this young man. Maybe at this moment he realized that one day his name would be on the wall or in the sky. One of my favorite radio producers, Scott Carrier, has lived for years in Salt Lake City. And so I called him up to find out what he thinks it'll be like if Mitt Romney becomes president. Will there be even more giddiness and glee? Well, Mormons have always, you know, clung very tightly to their beliefs that basically that Joseph Smith, you know, was a prophet and what he said was true. And everybody's always said, no, no, you're insane. That's ridiculous. But if Romney wins, I mean, to some extent, a lot of Mormons are going to feel like, you know, see, we were right all along. And, you know, if they're right all along, that means that, um, basically that we are in the latter days. You know, they call themselves the Latter-day Saints because they believe we're living in the latter days of the last dispensation of time, which ends when Jesus comes back, which is going to be soon. That's what Joseph Smith believed, anyway. 
and he thought it might be, even be in his own lifetime. Um, he ran for president in 1844 when he was 39 with a platform to annex Texas, free the slaves, close all the jails, and reduce the size of the government by turning it into a theocracy. Um, but you know, his campaign was cut short in June when he was killed, shot by an angry mob in jail, when he was in jail. Yeah. So he yeah. never made it. But, um, you know, his thing, Joseph Smith's story, was that Jesus guided the hands of our founding fathers in writing the Constitution to make sure, you know, to create a country that protected religious liberties so that Joseph Smith could be born and grow up to restore the gospel, found a new church, and that would, you know, prepare the way for the return of Jesus. Jesus you know, their idea is that Jesus created America to have a place he could live when he comes back. And that's, you know... Is that... It's concerning in a way because if he comes back, Mormons believe it, that he would come back to um, this place about 60 miles northeast of Kansas City. But other Mormons believe he'll he'll come back here and live in the Salt Lake Temple. And then other Mormons just say that's ridiculous. We don't know where he's going to live. We don't know anything. Just that he's coming back. But there are Mormons who believe that he's going to live here in Salt Lake City in the temple which is just down the street from my house. So you're saying... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a little weird. So you're you saying know? you don't want Jesus as a neighbor? No, I, <laughs> I would welcome him with open arms. I think it would be great. I have no problem with Jesus. It's just the, the idea that... They've always believed that they're chosen people. If Mitt Romney wins, it's going to make them you know, somewhat more confident in those beliefs. And that's just, just kind of bothersome to me. Yeah, the yeah. idea of chosen people, any chosen people, uh, is a troubling belief to me. Can, chosen people in promised land is, I think, just archaic notion. What would it be like? <laughs> like, what, what, what do you fear it would be like? Like, that's, I mean, this, this overconfidence, how would that translate into well, what your daily life would be like? Ah, uh, I... <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to sound bigoted or prejudiced. And, you, you know, know, Mormons, when it come, come right down to it, they're like people everywhere, you know. Just some are good, some are bad, some are really smart, some aren't. And so it's different. But, you know, you said, you described, you used the words giddy and glee. And I think that's not inaccurate. Mormons do have this, you know, aura of happiness, almost a glow about them at times. And, when I see that, when I run into it, you can see it really easily down at Temple Square. The people who work there, who volunteer to take visitors around, they have this glow about them. And, you know, when I see that, I feel like it doesn't really upset me. It's kind of fun in a way. I mean, to see it, it's, it's not really necessarily an upsetting thing, but it's just like it's a little creepy. Why are these people so happy? Why are they full of glee? <laughs> You know, it seems wrong somehow to me. And living living there surrounded by people who feel that way when I usually don't. I don't really really feel that way. Um, so, most of the time. It's just 
it's like they're having a party and you're really not, you know, want to be there. And so when you combine this with them being giddy about Romney, their man in the White House, you think it would just be over the top? Like the, what, 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 what would change if they're already beaming and glowing, yeah. how could it get worse? <laughs> right. Exactly. I don't know. It, it'll definitely go up another notch, but I think I can still take it. Maybe. I, I just don't know where I would go. I kind of like living here. It's never been a problem before, you know, because we have Mormon senators and congressmen, but their their votes are balanced by many others. It's just that the president, Mormon president, is a little bit disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot... the Constitution says there will be no religious test for public office, and according to that, Romney's religious beliefs should be off the table, not a matter of public discussion. And Thomas Jefferson said, it doesn't, it makes no difference whether my neighbor believes in 20 gods or no God. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. I think that's what he said, approximately. And, you know, it's, that's what America's all about, religious liberties. And so I want to believe that. I want to believe that Romney's not going to be anything new or different because... Um, I mean, the idea that God blesses America above all other nations, that's manifest destiny. That's, you know, 200 years old at least. And there have been other presidents, maybe all of our presidents have asked for and received God's help in making difficult decisions. You know, so maybe I'm trying to think Romney's not going to be any, any different necessarily. But then... If a president believes that our future has already been foretold and that, um, you know, it's like the apocalypse, that we're living in the final days, the apocalypse, and why would you try to stop global warming? It's part of God's plan. Or why would you try to stop war in the Middle East if it's destined? These things bother me. You know, I think... Maybe they do pick my pocket and break my leg, if not my balls. Remember how a few months ago there were all these stories about the vast amount of money that the right-wing super PACs were going to pour into the Romney campaign? Yeah, the fear was that all this money would enable Romney to buy more ads and swamp Obama. But he's raised about the same amount of money. I think they've each spent about a billion dollars. Yeah, but most of this money isn't being spent on advertising. Where's, where's it going then? Polls. So a couple days after the first debate, I get a call from a friend of mine, old buddy of mine, he used to work at the Pentagon. And now he's got this boutique polling agency, and they are totally swamped. So he calls me to ask if I got time to do some work with him. Wait, so, so now you're a pollster? Well, dude, it's not like you need a license for this sort of thing. It's, it's actually pretty easy. And both campaigns are more than willing to fork over serious cash for poll data right now. 
Wait, are you saying that pollsters just make stuff up? No, we're doing polls. It's just that they're super selective and narrow. So, for example, I did one where I called a bunch of uh, hair salons that catered to older women in Salt Lake City. And, you know, I got some serious Romney insight on that one. What, like 100% Romney? <laughs> it's not as one-sided as you'd guess. Um, another one uh, company asked us to do a poll for people who are registered uh, med- medical marijuana recipients in Colorado. And this one, this one also was was not as one-sided as you'd think. So you're basically telling me you're like one of the guys skewing with the data. No, this is kind of the way they've been done since the beginning. And a bunch of the major ones, for example, don't even call people with cell phones. I mean, think how many people you know that don't even have a landline anymore. So that's going to skew your results. Hmm. What's really crazy, though, what I've learned consulting for my buddy's polling company is that this election, it isn't about Obama and Romney. It isn't about two different visions for America. It's really about two different ideas about polling. What do you mean? This election is a referendum on Karl Rove and Nate Silver. As we head into the final days of the campaign, Nate Silver on his 538 blog has Obama's odds of winning at like 85%. And this is driving the Republican establishment crazy because He's totally destroying the narrative that this is a close race. Exactly how does Nate Silver do what he does? Well, he's stated a number of times that there's no secret sauce. I mean, he everything in his algorithm is, is available. He uses polling data. He uses economic data. He uses demographic trends. Um, and it's all in a large algorithm. And... But, you know, he's very transparent, and he runs 10,000 runs a day and aggregates them and takes averages, and then he reports whatever it is his algorithm says. And having just been doing the polling thing myself for the past month, I can tell you he's telling the truth. It's all just math. Hasn't it always been about math? No, the Republicans hate math, just like they hate science. They have the same attitude about math as they do about evolution. They don't believe in it. Exactly. I mean, think about Karl Rove. He's like the guru. He's the leader of the approach that's how they, how the Republicans do polling. And it's like a dark art, you know. Remember Bush called him the architect in 2004. So what is he doing then? Like anti-math? Well, he says he has the math. What does that even mean? I think it just means he fiddles with the numbers until it looks like his candidate is going to win. But, but wait a minute. Didn't both Nate Silver and Karl Rove predict the same outcome in 2008? Yes. They both predicted basically the same thing, an Obama super win. Rove got two states wrong. Silver got one state wrong. But this time, they're both predicting wildly different scenarios. Silver's predicting an 85% chance of an Obama win. Rove is predicting Romney will win at least 279 electoral college votes and 51% of the popular vote to Obama's 48. 
who, who then has the right math? Well, if Romney wins, it doesn't mean that Silver's model is wrong. It just means that the data is wrong. But if Obama wins, this totally blows up the Republican model. Okay? And Obama wins, throws a brick into the whole Republican works. It means that this race was never close. It means that the country isn't as polarized as they like to say it is. It means that demographics are changing. That means that the country really is moving to the left. And that means that the Republican Party is on its way to becoming irrelevant. And that means that Karl Rove is irrelevant. So, wait a minute. What does it mean, then, if Romney wins? It means the Republicans stole it. This episode of Too Much Information is called October Surprises. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen. It featured Adrian Tomina, Sylvain Gier, Scott Carrier, and TMI's special correspondent, Chris. There's links and more information on the TMI playlist page, and that's where you can find information on how to subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. While the Hudson River came within 50 feet of WFMU's front door, the station miraculously didn't flood. But the damage to WFMU from Hurricane Sandy is extensive. Once the electricity was returned, we discovered essential computer and broadcasting equipment that was damaged by the electricity failing and then surging before finally going out altogether. Both of our transmitters remain without power, all of our phone lines and audio circuits remain down, and the majority of our internet connections needed to broadcast over the web are out of commission. We've been broadcasting online using makeshift equipment and connections, but we need your help to stay online and to return once again to the FM airwaves. WFMU has never been in such a cash-poor position as we are right now. Our annual record fair also had to be canceled this past weekend due to Sandy. Please give as generously as you can to our hurricane recovery campaign. More information on the homepage at WFMU.org. And please urge your friends and family to do the same.